0: Do UFOs exist? Yes, they do, according to noted ufologist Stanton Friedman. And furthermore, our government does a great job covering up their existence. The following is a two-part interview with nuclear physicist and legendary ufologist Stanton Friedman, who has authored a number of bestsellers on the UFO phenomenon and was the first civilian investigator to blow the lid off the Roswell UFO cover-up. Mr. Friedman worked for years on classified government projects involving experimental aircraft and has devoted the past 30 years to investigating and sharing UFO knowledge. Besides having appeared in dozens of radio and TV documentaries, he has lectured at over 600 colleges and universities around the world. We are introducing this two-part special as a prelude to our series, The Year of the UFOs, the first episode of which is called The Braxton County Monster which is following right behind this release by about a day. The quality of this interview is not as stellar as we would have liked, possibly due to Mr. Friedman's location in New Brunswick, but regardless of the scratches, you will find some very interesting conversation. We're introducing this two-part special as a prelude to our series, The Year of the UFOs, the first episode of which is called The Braxton County Monster, which is following one day behind this release. And now, Stanton Friedman. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We have a very special guest here today to discuss the UFO events of 1952. Our guest's name is Stanton Friedman, and it's not an exaggeration to say that he's one of the best-known and best-respected authors and researchers on UFO phenomenon in the world today. He's a nuclear physicist, author, and lecturer who has spoken at over 600 colleges and universities worldwide, and appeared on literally hundreds of TV and radio programs, ranging from unsolved mysteries to Larry King and everything in between. When he worked as a nuclear physicist for GE, Westinghouse, and others, he worked on highly advanced, classified projects that dealt with aircraft development, fission and fusion rocket propulsion, and various nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He has devoted decades to researching the UFO phenomenon and was the first civilian investigator to investigate the Roswell incident, breaking that cover-up wide open. And he's written extensively on what really happened there, as well as our government's cover-up on the matter. We're preparing a special episode on Roswell with Stan Friedman for the weeks to come. Stan Friedman... Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're very glad to have you with us today, and we're counting on you to give us the story on UFOs in 1952. Why weren't we told about the UFO wars over Washington? What went on? And how did all this connect with Flatwoods?
1: Boy, all of that in an
0: hour?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's... I found out about this years ago. I've been to Flatwoods three times. I have talked to a number of the witnesses. I spoke with Frank as recently as last week, and he would like to have come on today, but he's got a prior commitment. Uh, Washington was the center of the universe, you know, uh, from a lot of people's viewpoint. Uh, the question is often asked why don't they just, the aliens just land on the White House lawn? Uh, You know, kind of a silly question. The White House is a no-fly zone, as a matter. you got to go back a little bit to understand that the Cold War was in action. And, you know, it's the same thing. With the Roswell incident happening, it was perfectly clear that there were alien visitors. We had wreckage. We had bodies. the, The whole Kitten caboodle on the other hand you have to say how how did we dare to go public with that we don't know what they want we know that they have flight capabilities well beyond ours but we don't know what their intention is or anything like that so the the, the, the country couldn't go public I don't I mean, I'm not one for secrecy. I had a clearance for 14 years. But there are times when you have to say it's the lesser of evils to keep the public out of the picture. And uh, we have a long history of doing highly classified work. In the process of making the A-bomb, for example, we built a facility that was a mile long to separate isotopes of uranium this during the Second World War. And it used, I mean, a mile long pumping uranium through filters and stuff. Uh, we were using 5% of all the electricity produced in the United States for that secret facility. And you can understand why we weren't going to say anything about that. And during the war, electricity was at a premium. So 5% was a lot to be used in secret on one project. So. The stealth aircraft was built at a cost of ten billion dollars over many years. You can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. People say, "Why don't they tell us?" They don't have to tell the Russians. Well, if they tell the American people, the Russians will know, or anybody else for that matter. There's no way to separate that out. It's a free country; people talk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And especially when you don't have a solution. Somebody says, well, okay, what do these guys want? We don't know. <laughs> you know? So it, it, it was a real conundrum for the government. And they had problems with where do we go from here? Also, we sometimes like to think, well, there is an, an alien race coming here. There may be 20 of them for all we know. And they may have different agendas. They don't all look alike. You know, look look at the guys going across the ocean after Columbus from a bunch of different countries for all kinds of different reasons. You know, there's no simple minded solution. What do these foreigners want? It depends on who you ask, you know. And what's going on. So what I'm saying is I can understand the concern with secrecy. The Cold War, let let me give you an example of why we were concerned about secrets. Uh, In 1948, General Leslie Groves, who headed the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons, was asked, how soon before the Russians have it? In 1948, and he hemmed and hawed, and well, they've had a terrible war and blah, blah, blah. His best estimate was eight years. Nothing to worry about now. It took a little over a year before the Russians exploded their first A-bomb. And have a radar network around the country. There's nothing to worry about. We're invincible, and vulnerable. They can't cross the ocean. And they don't have airplanes to deliver it. And then one May Day, there's a whole fleet of big planes. They copied a B-29 that we had left over there, at Len Lee's stuff and they built a bunch of big airplanes so suddenly you realize you really have to be careful here about what you tell the public and what you guess about what these characters want because there were sightings all over the world and many from pilots who said they outmaneuvered us all over the place we couldn't win a battle with these guys in the sky so this is not a curious situation of, oh, I wonder what those guys want, you know? It's not, not simple minded like that. And are they gonna working with somebody else on earth against us? That's not a trivial question, you know, considering the times. So Flatwoods was just one case. And I was impressed with the people I talked to when I was there was impressed with the witnesses, the location, uh, and, and it's unique in the description of the, I'll call it the monster, because I don't know what else to call it, this big old thing that walked around, seemed to be mechanical, uh, but no communication. It didn't say, hey, uh, this is what I want, this is what we want, right? There, there was no evidence of what was going on. So, Frank has done one heck of a job, Frank Ficino, on digging out people who were witnesses. And, you know, people say, well, why would they go to some small town in West Virginia? Come on, there's nothing important going on there. We don't know what might have been mined, whether their sensors had picked up information. Uh, maybe, maybe they were doing a survey. Uh, we really don't No, and when you're ignorant, you've got to be careful what you say when you open your mouth. I mean, you know.
0: Well, do you think that craft was in trouble when it went down and just looking for a clearing to land in? Or do you think that they were in that area for a reason?
1: Well, I think they were around that area for a reason. And they may, you know, now we do aerial surveys. We do it. For mining, you put equipment on board an airplane and you fly around and, ah, radiation or whatever, you know. Uh, So we don't know. Ignorance. And also, are these some of the good guys or the bad guys? Or, you know, it's not a simple kind of thing like that. Look, it's hard to imagine that one particular civilization might be flying all over the world. Maybe there are 10 different groups, representatives of the Galactic Federation, for whatever you want to call it. You know, uh, because we are a threat to the neighborhood. And people look at me, what do you mean, uh, you know? I say, look, many people don't realize now, we have tested 2,000 nuclear weapons. 2,000. Only two on people, thank God. Those weren't tests. But I mean, uh, the key about nuclear weapons It's not the terrible destructive power and all that, not in this discussion. That means that we have the knowledge to go to the stars. If we want to spend the dough, we can go. I was involved in a study on fusion propulsion for deep space travel. In 1962, we spent $9 million, government money, Air Force money, and concluded, uh, all it takes is dough, you can go. Now, in other words, if you stand back and you say, what would anybody out there want us out there? We killed 50 million people in World War II. We destroyed 1,700 cities. We're not nice guys. You know, it's not because I'm a nuclear physicist, but I have to say most people don't realize what a big step up it is in terms of propulsion to go nuclear. Let me. In World War II, a big bomb was a 10-ton blockbuster, 10 tons of dynamite, and it took a huge B-29 to carry the darn thing. One bomb, 10 tons of dynamite, and one pound will make a mess of your office. I'm off already. Mess. <laughs> uh, okay, that was in 45. I mean, 44. In 45, first A bomb, 15,000 tons of dynamite. So you go from 10 to 15,000 tons. The first H bomb, a fusion device, nuclear fusion. And that's what powers the universe that's what goes on in the sun it's not a mass of burning gas sorry the first h bomb released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite and the russians tested one a few years later in the 60s tsar bomba released 50 million tons the energy of 50 million tons tons of dynamite So that says, these idiots can go to the stars. We gotta watch out for them. People say, well, what are they coming here for? I say, one reason might be to quarantine us. We we haven't shown any signs of, look how many people starve every year on a planet. And The military budget this year, a trillion dollars. That would feed a lot of people, you know. So what I'm saying is you need this larger perspective it's, it's nice for us ufologists to talk about, isn't it interesting that somebody's developed better vehicles and stuff? But there are implications far beyond that. Uh, and one of them is raiding our neighbors. And, you know, funny thing to point out, but the Earth is unique in our solar system. It's the densest planet in the solar system, a cubic foot of Earth weighs more than a cubic foot of any of the other planets. And you say, so what? <laughs> well, it means there are more heavy metals here. Things like uranium, gold, osmium, iridium, and a whole bunch of these weird name things. Uh, so this place is different. And you can tell that without coming here. Aha, somebody would say. There's the place to go for heavy metals. Because heavy metals, we study the stars. We get light from the stars. We can analyze it. We can find out what's in the stars. And these elements are rare. So it may be that the miners from out there want to take the goodies from here. And there are goodies, is what I'm saying. We are different from the other planets in the solar system. And one of the implications is we will have the means to come out and bother the
0: neighborhood. There's no way around that. Which is why we've seen such a huge spike in UFOs since we we detonated the first atomic bomb. They know that we're capable of that. Therefore, we're now on their map. Yeah, and we're capable of putting them on
1: our map. And so you can understand. uh, There's another part of this, too. As late as the 1700s, 1600s we were talking about the world Bishop Usher. He was a, a cleric, and he went through the Bible and looked at all the begats, a sex fiend, you might say. And he figured out that the world was created in 4004 B.C., so 6,000 years ago. Okay, can't be anybody ahead of us, you know. Well, he left out six zeros, is 4 billion for BC. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that there are other civilizations, other places have had a long time to become not just a little ahead of us, but a great deal ahead of us. And so you need this perspective to understand that we look upon us as, you know, we're the center of the universe. Copernicus wrote a book in which he said that no, the sun was the middle of the universe, not the earth. The book was banned for 300 years. I mean, talk about egos. We had it. We're it. We're the big shots. So what I'm saying is there's some real difficulties here with trying to figure out what's going on in terms of motivation. We we can see how they fly. That doesn't tell us how to duplicate it. I mean, uh, when I started working in industry, I was using a slide rule, little device.
0: Oh, very now, familiar with it. Yeah, my dad was a was an engineer for GE, uh, and slide rule was it. If he had to figure out a mortgage calculation, out would come the slide rule. Yeah,
1: and I've gone into classrooms and my travels where nobody knows what a slide rule is. What what I'm saying is. Progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. And that's just a trivial example, but they're all over the place. Uh, This, computers we're talking through, if you had told somebody about that 75 years ago, he'd have laughed his head off, lock him up, this guy's crazy, you know? So it's that lack of perspective that enters into many discussions. Uh, I mean, there are still people who think governments can't keep secrets. Well, they
0: can, and they have. We have many examples. Uh, and one of the points, not to interrupt, but the one of the points you make is that if, if you try to understand why our government has been so secretive with respect to UFOs, a lot of that was maybe started with fear that we saw no positive gain for the United States government in being transparent about what we were seeing in terms of UFOs that could well have been a Russian UFO. So why should we announce that to the public and to everybody else? It was pretty much kept in the military and pretty much looked at as a, as, being, as keeping the defensive position. Let's stay quiet about this. Is, is that correct? Well, I think so. And remember,
1: uh, the aliens as seen in the abduction cases and other stories are typically small. So maybe they're working with the Chinese. They're smaller than we are. The only time I felt big in my life was walking around Hong Kong at a, at a mall. I was bigger than everybody and i'm not tall i'm five five, nine and a half on a good day you know but what i'm saying is this concerned with who are they going to work with there are a lot more chinese on the planet than there are americans you know maybe there's a, a kinship so there are a lot of major concerns now i talk about the cosmic water gate it's only to make people aware that just because the saucers haven't appeared on ABC News, on the 6 o'clock news, the aliens, hi, folks, here we are, doesn't mean they're not real and doesn't mean that there aren't some legitimate concerns. I have a great deal of respect for Harry Truman, for example. And I think he had good reasons for going along with uh, the cover-up. I, I, I'm not, I don't like being lied to. One of the documents I talk a lot about is the biggest study uh, ever done for the United States Air Force. Project Blue Book, Special Report Number Fourteen, got data on 3,201 sightings. This was done way back in '55. Done. It's interesting. Done by Battelle Memorial Institute. Their name isn't in the report. The authors of the report aren't there. But there's the press release, which was given very wide distribution. The report wasn't, but the press release was. In that press release, they said, on the basis of this study, we believe no objects as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. No, that takes care of it. Well, when you get the report, the unknowns weren't three percent. They were twenty one and a half percent. That's not three rounded off where I come from. They did a quality evaluation of all the sightings. You'll hear many debunkers say, Oh, the reason they couldn't identify sightings is there just wasn't enough data. You know, ignorance, not not enough information. There's a separate category, insufficient information. 9.3% 9.3% in that category. The better the quality of the sighting, the more likely to be unidentifiable. They're the only ones you're interested in. You know, 30-some percent of the excellent cases couldn't be identified, only 15% of the poor cases. So the quality says, the better the quality, the more difficult it was to identify. That's scary. I hope it was the other way around. Uh, I should stress that not only Blue Book Special Report 14, but there are normally four other large-scale scientific studies that I talk about, and when I check my audiences, I find out that 95% of the people have read none of them. So uh, let me make clear where I stand. One. The evidence is overwhelming planet earth is being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft some ufos are alien spacecraft most are not i don't care about the ones who are not uh, two we're dealing with a cosmic watergate. gate there's a great deal of data blacked out documents whited out documents you go after the nsa And they'll release 156 top-secret Umbra UFO documents. You can read one sentence per page. (laughs) That's not releasing. The third conclusion, uh, there are no good arguments against the first two. And the fourth is we're dealing with the biggest story of the millennium, business of planet Earth by alien spacecraft for purposes that we don't yet really know about. That's significant. As far as I'm concerned. So uh, I've had it, I've answered, I once figured out how many thousands of questions I've answered over the years. Uh, You know, 700 lectures, uh, 19 countries, 10 (laughs) provinces, 50 states. I get around, and there's always question and answer periods and interviews and all this sort of stuff. So one of the problems we have is that most people think most people don't believe in flying saucers, so they act accordingly. But I've never found that to be the case. I've had 11 hecklers and over 700 lectures and two of them were drunk. And you get that many if you're talking about sports, religion, politics, whatever. So it's okay. When I ask at the end of my uh, lectures, how many people here believe they've seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer? This is after my lecture just raise your hand, I count, point and count, 10%. Then I say, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. And when I talk to people, why didn't you report it? They think I was some kind of a nut. So that's an important consideration and why I'm such a guy going around, I've written six books, et cetera, and doing the media stuff, because I think people need hear the facts and the data, not the mythology that comes from the nasty, noisy negativists, as I call them. So uh, I'm convinced that there's been a major shift in attitudes uh, in general. One of the reasons, something straightforward, When Frank Drake in 1960 talked about listening for signals because there may be beings out there sending radio waves, he was talking that there might be 6,000 places that could be sending us signals. So a lot of work, gotta listen. Now, because of the Kepler uh, satellite, we know that there are about 1.6 Planets per star. Think about that for a minute. Within 100 light years of here, there are 10,000 stars. That means about 16,000 planets just down the street. And the galaxy is thousands of uh, light years across. So our perspective has changed drastically. I don't run into anybody who says, well, there can't be anybody out there. The planet's all over the place. I'm not saying they all have life, but don't forget colonization and migration. Everybody's gotta be concerned. What if there's a catastrophe? Where do we go next? So we gotta find out about the neighborhood. And so our perspective has changed drastically in the direction of saying, life all over the place out there, guys. Some of it more advanced than we are. What else is new? (laughs) (laughs) So it's that sense of perspective. If I had said there's 1.6 planets per star 60 years ago, mark them up, somebody would have said. You know, now that's what the facts indicate. So we we need to take that into account.
0: I also (laughs) want to get your take on... I think it was uh, I think it was Dr. Heinicke, and it may it may also have been Carl Sagan, who believed that the the biggest reason that they don't believe in interplanetary travel is that the planets are so far apart that no one's propulsion system could get them from A to Z. And where do you stand on that one? Uh, Carl Sagan and I, incidentally, were
1: classmates at the University of Chicago for three years in the same physics classes. He came to my lecture at Cornell, and so uh, I'm sorry he's not still with us. The whole question of getting here from there, when you, if you start assuming that the next guy over is 500 light years away, that's one thing. If, it, I've done a lot of work on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, and there was a star map seen there. And a brilliant woman named Marjorie Fish built a whole bunch of three-dimensional models and was able to identify the stars in the pattern. And the base stars, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2, it's the constellation of reticulum. can't see it from here. you got to go below the equator to see it. Anyway, those two stars are an eighth of a light year apart, 30 times closer to each other than we are to the next star over. Oh. Secondly, this fusion propulsion thing. I I get people saying, Oh, they can't stand the acceleration. I've had audiences guests. I say a multiple choice question. How long does it take at one G acceleration? That's the force of gravity right here, right? You drop something, it accelerates toward the center of the earth. Uh, at one G, how long does it take to get to the speed of light? Multiple choice. Thousand years, a hundred years, ten years, or one. How many think it's a thousand, a hundred, ten, one? Most people think it's a thousand or a hundred. It takes less than one year at one g to get close to the speed of light. Less than a year. Now, I can't do that in my car. That's not what we're talking about. And so there's another, people want half an Einstein. Everybody knows Einstein said the speed of light's the limit. What he also said, which has been demonstrated in the lab, is as you get close to the speed of light, time slows down. Now, don't ask me why. That's the way God created the universe. You know, pick any reason you want. How much does it slow down? Well, it depends on how close you get. Well, as it happens, less than a year to get close to the speed of light. The Large Hadron Collider, that huge accelerator over in Switzerland, there accelerates particles to ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of the speed of light. You can go out, come back, marry your granddaughter's best friend. I mean, that's how much difference it makes. And so, one has to presume that any smart alien, he's, he's got a two-stage system. Just we have aircraft carriers. Nuclear-powered aircraft carriers can operate for 18 years without refueling. The little airplanes they carry can fly for two hours without refueling. You know, different systems. So when you start looking at the practical physics, there are two different environments, one in the vicinity of a planet like ours. Gravitational field and atmosphere, which affects drag, heating, uh, sonic boom production, all those other things. And an empty space in between. In that empty space, there ain't nothing getting in the way, man. You go fast. Very fast. And so, yes, it's a common argument. You can't get here from there. But it isn't true. You can't do it with uh, 747. I like flying in big airplanes, but no, you can't do it with that. But there are a lot of things that it takes, technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. If I told somebody that I would have a computer on my desk and it's not a fancy one that can do the things that it does, 60 years ago, they'd have laughed their heads off. I remember when I started working in industry, Computers filled up a whole room. They needed air conditioning for the, the whole thing. They didn't have anywhere near the capability that my little desk computer does. You know, we we call it a desktop, but it's a remarkable device. So, the argument you can't get here from there. You have to add well, if you use the old systems of doing you know, if you use crummy technology, uh, it took Magellan three years to go around the planet. Three years. He didn't make it to ship (laughs) But the space station does it in 95 minutes. Wow. It's not a small sailboat. It's an entirely different device. You see what I'm saying? Gotcha. So, we we need to uh, try to Give the kids a sense of how much, how far we've come within my lifetime.
0: When did Stanton, when did you first become involved in the Roswell story? And, and also, for our listeners' sake, let them know what the story is as you tell us how you became involved.
1: Well, the, the basic story is that there were, was a crash of two flying saucers, for want of a better word, in New Mexico in 1947, it's called Roswell, that was the nearest town. Now, the debunkers forget to tell you, Roswell was a special place, why? It was the home of the 509, the only atomic bombing group in the entire world, in the world. They dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They tested two more in the testing thing two years later. So uh, I I had an astronomer in England say, why would anybody go to New Mexico? There's nothing there but sand. There is a lot of sand in New Mexico. (laughs) And I said, have you ever been there? Well, no. Then you don't know that two of the three nuclear weapons labs in the United States are in New Mexico? That all our early advanced rocketry was done at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. So uh, one of the reasons these things are there is there aren't many people. You don't set off bombs and rockets when there are a lot of people around. It's not not good for the property value.
0: It wouldn't work too well in suburban Philadelphia. No,
1: no, not at all. So I heard about it. Uh, a colleague and I were talking to a man in San Francisco where it had a good sighting. I was living in California at the time. And uh, he said, you really ought to talk to my mom. She had it report. Lydia Sleppy was her name. So I got her number, I called her, and she had a good sighting. She was in Roswell. And they called to report it to, because they didn't have a wire service down there, uh, to Albuquerque, where they had connections and all that sort of stuff. And they were talking about it on the phone, and uh, they were interrupted by the FBI. Discontinue this conversation. Okay. What she says, what should I do? And discontinue the conversation. You know, that's when I first heard about it. And I got as many names as I could, and I got as far as I could. And they couldn't remember. It was a long time ago. This is in the 70s. We're talking about something that happened in 47. Oh. So then i was in louisiana doing a television interview and i finished the interview and the program manager the station managers said you know the guy you really ought to talk to is jesse marcel brilliant investigator that i am i said who's he well, this next sentence changed my life he handled wreckage of one of those saucers you were interested in when he was in the military he was not joking there was nobody else around I was shook up. Uh, we're old ham radio buddies. And so, okay, he lives in Houma, Illinois, uh, Houma Louisiana. That didn't tell me anything. I didn't know where Homa was. The next day, I called information. For the younger people listening, we used to get phone numbers by calling information, not by going to a computer. <laughs> and I got a number for Jesse Marcel, and I called him. I stressed my background, because I wanted him to know that I had been in the nuclear business, you know, that I wasn't just some UFO nut or whatever. And he told me his story. He was the intelligence officer with the 509, based in Roswell. Incidentally, they had a 13,000 foot runway there, one of the longest in the country, because there were B-36s based there, six foot of concrete feet. The German Air Force used to come over and fly there because plenty of room, no mountains close by. You know? So I talked to Jesse. He gave me some names. You know, for this we're talking, this is like in 1977 or so. So I had a lot of work to do. And the next couple of years, Found 60 people. Uh, talked to Walter Hout. He was the base public information officer. He had a base yearbook. Got a copy of that. So I got lots of names. And you call somebody and, no, I don't remember anybody. And then after 10 minutes, oh, yeah, did you talk to Joe Jones, Bill Smith, whatever? First year, 60 people, a uh, bunch more the next year, going after uh, witnesses. And we're talking about the most elite military group in the country. Jesse was the intelligence officer for the group that dropped the atom bombs on Japan. That counts for a great deal because you had to have high level clearances, you had to be completely trustworthy. You know, we're mm-hmm. talking peak of that sort of stuff. These weren't a bunch of GIs who had nothing other to do than sweep the floor and hear something exciting. This was preparedness. They, they were this special group. So I helped a lot of other people find other people and uh, so Roswell made clear to the government back in 47 because they had wreckage of two crash bodies bodies testimony from high level people this was significant, something that had to be dealt with. It couldn't be ignored because the reports are coming in from all over the place, obviously. But when you got wreckage, there's proof positive. Also, it means you're vulnerable. You don't want your enemies to find out what you got, and you want them to talk to your people and all this sort of stuff. So you can understand the, uh, the headlines in 47 Army captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region, next day, general says it's radar weather balloon. And that was the end of it, mm-hmm. but you not understand why. You didn't want people looking into it, thinking about it and so forth. So uh, Roswell, I am going to be at Roswell, they have an annual festival and Roswell's in the middle of nowhere. It's 200 miles from Albuquerque. New Mexico's a big state. It's 200 miles from Amarillo, Texas. It's 200 miles from El Paso, Texas. If you're there, it's because you want to be there. It's not on the way to anywhere. Last year, the International UFO Museum and Research Center had 223,000 visitors. Wow. Not on the way to someplace else. Going to Roswell. So I mean that gives you an indication. I'm going back. I'm going to be the Grand
0: Marshal of the parade this year. Congratulations! In July. I don't think I'm riding a horse. In case you're <laughs> what did Jesse tell you? What did What did Jesse share with you, Jesse Marcel?
1: Jesse told me his story. Uh, a rancher came into the sheriff's office with some wreckage. uh, There'd been an announcement that there was a reward being offered. This is in 47 now. Uh, And he stopped at the local store there. I mean, he went into Roswell, talked to the sheriff. The sheriff sent him to the base. He told the story to Jesse Marcel. Jesse's commander, Colonel Blanchard, who incidentally went on to be a four-star general and vice chief of staff of the United States Air Force before he died of a massive heart attack. He wasn't a dink either, is what I'm saying. Uh, Colonel Blanchard told Jesse, take one of our counterintelligence corps guys out. They followed the rancher, William Brazzle, out to the crash site. It's out in the middle of nowhere. I, I've been, been out there, it's nowhere. <laughs> There's nothing there, no, no stores, no nothing, you know. And they brought back two vehicles full of pieces spread out over an area, half a mile, you know, covered a big area. And Jesse told me in our first conversation that he thought there must have been a mid-air collision or something, or explosion at least, because the wreckage covered such a large area. I mean, it didn't just hit and make a hole in the ground, in other words. So he was on the airplane. just he was sent with some of the wreckage to the headquarters of the 8th Air Force, of which they were a part. That was in Fort Worth, Texas. And General Roger Ramey was head of the 8th Air Force. and. I talked to Thomas Jefferson DuBose, who was Ramey's assistant, and he remembers the phone call coming from Ramey's boss, General McMullen in Washington. Send some of that wreckage up here today with one of your Colonel Couriers. I don't want you to talk about it again. This was a big deal. And Jesse being the intelligence officer for this, of course, you don't say anything to anybody standard practice. I've also talked, incidentally, Jesse's son was at home when Jesse came home with the wreckage before he went to the base the next day. He was 11 years old. He went on to be a colonel, a medical doctor, and so forth. And he has testified, he's written a book about this. He's deceased now, so is Jesse Sr., of course. But these are the kind of people, I mean, a medical doctor, a colonel, was called back in and Combat at age 67 in helicopters in the Middle East. These are special people, you know. So the Roswell story uh, has drawn a lot of attention all over the world. Uh, we found a lot of people who knew a part of it. There's a DVD out, it's got testimony from 27 first hand witnesses. They're all dead now. Oh, all, all but one long as a young man who was with his family in the area at the time. So Roswell marked a turning point, in other words. It's one thing to say you saw strange craft cavorting around the sky. But when you got bodies and wreckage, that's another matter
0: entirely. How many body how many bodies were there and how could they tell it was two crafts? <laughs> they had reports from two uh, of
1: I, I wish I would love to have to be able to see the reports that the government investigators wrote, we don't have any of that stuff. It, it's kind of interesting that we don't have that stuff. Uh, it, you know, people think governments can't keep secrets. Oh, the government can't keep the secret. Come on, uh, I point out that the NSA, National Security Agency, very highly classified intelligence organization. And it really means it never says anything, you know? We filed a legal action a number of years ago under freedom of information to get their UFO files, and it took a long time. They finally uh, released some. You could read one sentence per page on 156 pages. Everything else is whited out. <laughs> We've been after the CIA, for their under freedom of information. We got about 900 pages of stuff up through secret, mostly blacked out. It took uh, several years beyond that to get the top secret stuff, and you can read five words a page, six words a page, stuff like that. So, and <laughs> what's really funny is somebody filed another request for a set of those papers. The NSA said, uh, Gee, we've looked and we can't find those. We can't make a set for you.
0: (laughs) That's frustrating. (laughs) The skeptics will tell you again and again, there's nothing to see here. There's no such thing as, as UFOs. There's no such thing as visitors from other planets. If there were, our government would tell us. And no, our government's not hiding anything. And yet, when you go to these reports and you've got 600 pages and 598 of them are redacted, what are we supposed to believe? Well, look, I had a
1: clearance for 14 years. I don't even have copies of some of the final reports I wrote. It had nothing to do with UFOs, you understand. Radiation shielding for nuclear rockets, nuclear airplanes, stuff like that. All kinds of, it was very interesting work until they canceled the program. <laughs> <laughs> I've worked on more canceled programs than anybody. Of course the government can keep secrets. And I, I have people tell me, Well, the wives of the people. I'm I'm a supporter of the Majestic Twelve group. We got some documents, which said this group was set up to deal with flying saucers. Named the members of the group, a very outstanding group of scientists and military people, and so forth. And uh, I, I get people who don't seem to understand that governments can and do and should keep secrets. I'm not saying this secret should be kept. I'm just saying. That's the reality of the matter. Like it or not, it has nothing to do with it. And the basic rule, again, you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. And people say, those guys would have talked to their wives. I never told my wife anything classified. would be breaking the law in the first place. It would be stupid. I can't control what she says and that would she know what's important and what isn't. Uh, and. People look at me sometimes. I mean husbands don't talk to their wives? No, darn it, they don't. I mean, that, that's the rule of the game. I, I once had to carry my own slides to a conference. I was giving a presentation, and they weren't ready for the courier who was going to official carrier of stuff. And I was think, so they sat me down, scared the heck out of me How how I had to take care of those slides. And they don't go in the trunk of the car when I've got the rental car at the other end. They stay with you. And I was so glad to get rid of that stuff, you wouldn't believe. That's the way things are. And I, I, I've never talked to anybody. I've talked to lots of people who had clearances. Who give any indication of ever telling your wife anything classified. It's the wrong thing to do. The penalties are severe. So Roswell was the beginning. It's not the only crash. There have been others. But it certainly told us that there was something very exciting, very important, potentially dangerous going on. And who knows how many uh, things we've learned from the wreckage, for example. I was surprised to find out that I was looking at some work on uh, special magnetic materials and I was surprised to find out, oh, the original work on that was done at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is where the wreckage went. Uh, can I prove a link? Of course not. I don't have the document that says it.
0: They keep coming up in all my stories, whether it's the Kecksburg UFO Bell or anything else that that landed. Apparently the pieces went to Wright, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And then and the the rumor, and I won't go long on this, but the rumor with the Keksberg UFO, which is one of our past episodes, was that that was created by the German contingent of the German scientists that we brought over immediately after World War II, changed their names, and had them working for us at Wright Patterson on uh, rocketry propulsion.
1: Werner von Braun was one of those guys. Yep. Yeah.
0: And, no. that, and that their German counterparts sent, literally sent, the, the bell <laughs> over uh, on a satellite, and it launched down off the satellite, entered the Earth's atmosphere. The people saw it coming over the hills of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, and within hours the Air Force was there to cordon off the area, put it on a flatbed, and take it 160 miles up to Wright-Patterson. I think they were trying to send it to Wright-Patterson, but might have fallen short by a couple hours' drive. <laughs> And of course the townspeople were all told, nothing to see here, don't worry about it, as the flatbed with something bell-shaped underneath the huge tarp on the back of the of the flatbed went out of town at two o'clock in the morning headed for Ohio. And of course the townspeople were all told, nothing to see here, don't worry about it, as the flatbed with something bell-shaped underneath the huge tarp on the back of the of the flatbed went out of town at two o'clock in the morning, headed for Ohio.
1: Look, I've been at Wright-Patterson. Uh, I'm project, project director on a project evaluating. I, I, I love the title. It illustrates the problem here. Analysis and Evaluation of Fastened Intermediate Reactors for Space Vehicle Applications. I'm a nuclear guy, reactors. Uh, one word was left out, Soviet. I was looking at Soviet technology. I don't have a copy of my final report. I, I was glad when I heard about a crash saucer somewhere. Oh, OK. Uh, you know, they were doing, oh, I, I know what it was. The Russians, actually, most Americans aren't aware. I worked on nuclear power plants for space. Why? could you get a lot of energy in a small package. That's very useful if you're going to put it in space, because you've got to launch the darn thing. And Cosmos 954 came down, and it had a nuclear reactor on board. Well, it turns out that the Soviets launched 34 nuclear reactors into space. The United States launched one. They were way ahead of us. Nobody said anything. But, and Wright-Patterson was the people that I dealt with in my study. So uh, you begin to appreciate there's a lot going on that we don't know about. And because you've got access under one program, doesn't mean you have it under another program. Two things, a need to know and an appropriate clearance. Having a clearance isn't enough. Because you've got a top-secret clearance doesn't mean you have access to everything. that's top-secret. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. So, and, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, when Lyndon Johnson was elected president, so what did he do? He closed the base to Roswell and moved that base to Texas, of all places. So it serves him right that Roswell gets all those tourists coming. Some good came out of it. They did nothing wrong. Like I say, they got a 13,000 foot runway. Uh, it's, it's fitting that they reap the benefit. and I recommend the museum
0: to anybody who's out that
1: way. It's worth
0: it. Some of the most notable UFO incidents uh, since 1947 that, you are, that you're aware of, that you've, done, uh, that you've written about.
1: Well, I, I have talked about, other people have written about, the uh, RB-47 case. A reconnaissance bomber encounters a UFO. They pick it up on their radar. It circles around. is a military plane over in the Gulf of Mexico, and they they're with this thing for almost an hour. Then it takes off. You got six highly trained crew members, all kinds of gear. Radar, radio equipment, and stuff like that. Uh, what can you do with a case like Dr. James E. McDonald followed up on that. He was an outstanding ufologist. Uh, his congressional testimony has 41 separate cases that he investigated, where he talked to all the witnesses and so forth. Uh, many of the military, of course. Uh, the I like the physical trace cases. A man named uh, Ted Phillips uh, has collected several thousand physical trace cases. He was a protege of Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Allen was the Air Force Scientific Consultant on Blue Book for 20 years. And Ted gathered the cases where people saw the saucer on or near the ground. And after it leaves, you find the equivalent of burn circles, burn rings, landing gear marks, stuff like that. Uh, You know, and about uh, 16% of six of the cases involve reports of beings associated with the craft on the ground. And after the first 100 good cases, you're stuck. This is reality, folks, you know. So there's loads of them there. Uh, I like multiple witness radar visual cases. Uh, they just released that tape of the Navy jets chasing this
0: thing, which suddenly goes zip. Yeah, the de- the debunkers are saying that was a reflection.
1: Reflection of idiocy on the part of the debunkers is all I can say. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we can't forget that we trust our military pilots with a very sophisticated piece of equipment. Be in a position to handle nuclear weapons as the occasion arises, and the, who have high-level clearances. And you don't—they don't turn over a, an F-18 to just anybody coming along. And they're trained. One of the important things about being a military aircraft pilot is to be able to very quickly distinguish between friend and foe, looking at other flying things in the na- neighborhood. Because you don't have much time to make a decision. Should I shoot or not? Should I get out of here? What, what, what do I do? Highly trained, highly motivated, uh, well-paid as military people go. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's easy to dismiss that testimony. But I, I've won debates. I debated with the head of the Skeptic Society, Dr. Michael Shermer on Coast to Coast Radio for a three-hour show, a lot of ads and so forth. I, then they took a poll of the audience. 80% said I won. <laughs> he hadn't studied any of the documents. He hadn't studied any of the evidence. Yeah.
0: Thanks for joining us for part one of our interview with Stanton Friedman. Yes, UFOs exist, and yes, our government covers it up. Part 2 to follow in just a few days. If you enjoy this episode, please take a moment to send us a nice review at iTunes' Apple Podcast app. And listen up, everybody. Some important notes for those of you who have been using our 1001 app. If it hasn't gone away yet, it soon will be, as we have changed hosts, having outgrown the services offered by our existing host. To get all four of our shows now, either return to downloading them individually from your current host, or go to 1001storiesnetwork.com. That's 1001storiesnetwork.com, our home website, which is easy to use and has everything we do. For Android apps, I prefer Player.fm, and they were the first to pick up 1001 Radio Days. We'll put a bunch of links in the show notes for you. Subscribers, by the time you hear this, we will probably be done. That support program is also going away. I can't thank you premium members enough for for helping us out these past few months. I enjoy your emails and suggestions, and I hope they keep coming. You have all become a part of the support staff here. We're making the shift right now to digitally placed advertising, which covers our entire inventory of over 300 episodes. This was a great move for us, because unlike some shows, our back catalog is very active. Well, I went long, but I wanted you to know that everything is in a growth mode, and we're having fun here with Never a Dull Moment. Please take a few minutes and send us some creative reviews for 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.